You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Michael Dobbs. Michael Dobbs has been on the podcast once before to talk about his book, detailing Richard Nixon's six months between his reelection and the resignation of his top aides in 1973. But today he's on to talk about his book, One Minute to Midnight. It's the definitive account of the most terribly supreme moment of the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And we are recording this on October 22nd, which is the 59th anniversary of John F. Kennedy's nationally televised address in which he revealed to Americans and the world what the top level of our government suspected for weeks that the Soviet Union was placing offensive nuclear weapons in Cuba. It was in this speech that he announced a naval quarantine was being effected around the Caribbean island. If you are old enough to remember this event, then you are old enough to remember how scared you were. One minute to midnight, Kennedy, Khrushchev, and Castro on the brink of nuclear war was a New York Times bestseller. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, uh, in her review and her comment, said, I didn't think there was another thing one could write about the Cuban Missile Crisis, but this is so well done. Farid Zakaria of CNN called it a gripping, moment-by-moment account of the crisis, the best one I've read. Mr. Dobbs, thank you very much for coming back on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. You were a young man of 12, if I may say, when the Cuban Missile Crisis played out. What do you remember from that time? Actually, I was a schoolboy in England at a boarding school, and uh, I remember the day of Kennedy's speech or the day after the teacher came into the classroom and said that there's this very grave situation and um, it looks as though the Soviet Union, the United States are on the brink of nuclear war. And um, But uh, we didn't have that same teacher again until a week later. And by the time he came back and briefed us all, it was all over. So I spent the week wondering what would happen. And in the end, it was all peacefully diffused. 
You've had a long, distinguished career as a journalist and a historian uh, documenting Cold War issues. Uh, your book, uh, Six Months, I forget the exact title. Uh, In 1945. 1945, yeah. right. I read that actually as well, and it's terrific. Uh, what led you to write this book? Well, I had been a reporter for the Washington Post in Moscow right at the end of the Cold War, actually, when communism collapsed and the Soviet Union disintegrated. And I'd written a book called um, Down With Big Brother, which was about the collapse of communism. And having written about the collapse of communism, I thought I'd try to tackle the uh, height of the Cold War, the tensest moments in the Cold War, uh, which, of course, is the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. And um, when I thought about writing it, everybody said, well, there have been a lot of books about the Cuban Missile Crisis. There's not all that much new to say, but I was surprised at the amount of new material, uh, particularly from the Russian side. I mean, there'd been quite a bit from the American side, but that was the American story. And really what was interesting to me was to integrate the American story with the Russian and Cuban story, and also not only to look at what was happening at the highest level between Kennedy and Khrushchev, but what was happening on the ground, uh, on the front lines of the Cold War, um, so to speak, uh, between uh, American and Russian and Cuban soldiers. And it was really at the ground level that the real risk of nuclear war in my view, originated because it, the real risk came from events uh, sort of running out of the control, of, out of the ability of the top leaders to uh, control them. And there are a number of incidents uh, that took place on the front lines that the leaders didn't know anything about that could have escalated into a full-blown nuclear war. Would you care to give us one or two? It comes through in your book about um, how pilots strayed off course and and they had certain uh, lower-level uh, commanders who who thought they had authority to fire or authority to engage. It, and that, that that's where your book, I think, really shines. Right. I think there are a number of incidents, and it's difficult to single out just one. But, um, you know, I think we were in the early stages of a nuclear war in 1962, and um, I mean, just to mention a couple, uh, the uh, Soviets had sent submarines armed with nuclear torpedoes to escort their ships uh, to Cuba. And the Americans knew about these uh, submarines because they had the ability to track uh, Soviet submarines at that period. And they were trying to bring these submarines to the surface by hurling down uh, depth charges or hand grenades. And what they didn't know, the Americans, was that uh, the Soviet submarines uh, were armed with nuclear torpedoes that could have completely blown an entire American fleet out of the water. And the uh, atmosphere in these submarines, the tiny little tin cans similar to the German U-boats in World War II was, you know, frenetic. Um, the Soviet sailors didn't know what was happening, and uh, they were tempted at times to use their nuclear torpedoes to um, uh, prevent what they saw as a humiliation by the Americans. And there are other incidents in which 
on the most dangerous day of the crisis, actually an American U-2 spy plane was shot down over Cuba and another went missing over the Soviet Union. Um, and the Soviets sent up MiG fighters to try to bring it down. Um, in the event, the American U-2 uh, escaped back to the United States, but you could also envisage circumstances in which that incident could have uh, triggered a nuclear war. And there are other incidents as well. It was simply caused by the um, the fact that in 1962, uh, neither the Soviet Union nor the US completely controlled uh, the launch of nuclear weapons. The decision to launch could have been made in some circumstances by relatively low-level officers, lieutenants, captains, majors. Um, and there was a lot that Khrushchev and Kennedy didn't understand about what was happening at the ground level. In reading the reviews of your book, one thing that comes through from the reviewers is that you you debunked a legend or two, because a lot of legends, you know, they crop up around important historical events. Um, what were, let's say, one or two uh, myths that you you examined and found to be either be not true or perhaps exaggerated? Well, there was one in particular that uh, was incorporated into the uh, movie uh, 13 Days, um, which depicts this confrontation on the uh, blockade line, um, the quarantine line between American ships and Soviet missile-carrying ships. And supposedly the Soviet missile-carrying ships came right up to the blockade line. The commander of the American uh, destroyer flotilla is in direct communication with the White House. Um, the president thinks that uh, the Soviets are about to violate that blockade line that he's established. He's uh, ordering the uh, American destroyers to fire on the Soviet ships. And at the last moment, the Soviet ships turn around. This is the so-called eyeball to eyeball moment when supposedly Khrushchev and Kennedy were, um, you know, eyeball to eyeball and Khrushchev blinked. I mean, I discovered from looking at the American records and also interviewing Soviets that that moment never happened. I mean, there were many dangerous things that were happening, but uh, Khrushchev had ordered his uh, missile-carrying ships to turn around the day before, and the missile-carrying ships never reached the blockade line. There was this clash between the sub U Soviet submarines and um, U.S. destroyers or uh, dangerous incidents, but insofar as the clash on the blockade line, the confrontation depicted in that movie and uh, a lot of Cuban Missile Crisis literature, actually, that absolutely never happened. What did you learn about the Cuban Missile Crisis that you didn't know beforehand? You're obviously a, a learned scholar and deep into the archives and the history itself. But what was your like, I didn't know that moment? Well, there was a lot. I mean, I just mentioned a couple of things. I mean, mainly how the... Soviets were handling their nuclear weapons on Cuba, which I pieced together from uh, from interviews with Soviet veterans, but also American intelligence reports. And frequently the Americans, I mean, they were gathering a lot of intelligence, but they didn't know how to interpret it. And uh, for example, the 
simple question of where the Soviet nuclear weapons were stored on Cuba. That was a mystery to the CIA. But I was able to piece that together and show precisely the bunkers where the Soviet weapons were stored and how they were moved about. Also, to reveal um, a plan to attack the U.S. naval base at Guantanamo, which was actually put into its early stages, uh, and how um, the Russians had a very crude uh, sort of cruise missile that could um, be launched against the the uh, naval base, which they brought up right to the periphery of the naval base on the most dangerous day of the crisis. And so there's a whole lot of uh, detail about um, the handling of nuclear weapons on both sides, but particularly on the Soviet side, um, and things that the CIA simply didn't know. I mean, the president, they knew where the missiles were, but they didn't know where the warheads were. And that was absolutely crucial information because it's only after the warheads are mated to the missiles that they can be uh, launched against an American target. What made you choose the title of your book, One Minute to Midnight? It's a metaphor for something, I'm sure. Right. Well, One Minute to Midnight, there's a group called the Federation of American Scientists, which uh, devised what they call a nuclear clock, which is meant to show how close the uh, mankind is to uh, nuclear annihilation. And uh, they've been moving this clock around um, over the years. I think they devised this clock in the 50s sometime. And um, anyway, metaphorically, the clock stood at one minute to midnight uh, in October 1962. And so that was the reason for uh, the title of this book. You mentioned it just a few minutes ago, but there have been so many terrific books written about Cold War topics since the collapse of the Soviet Union. One of my favorites is David Edmonds, who wrote a terrific book on the Fischer-Spassky match in 1972 that makes extensive use of those archives. He actually came on the podcast and his book is called Bobby Fischer Goes to War, How the Soviets Lost the most extraordinary chess match of all time. How did these archives help you? And would it have been conceivable to, to have written your book without them? I, I don't think so. No, I mean, it, generally it takes 40 to 50 years for the archives to reveal their secrets. And that's true on the American side. And of course, the Soviet side, everything was completely secret up until the collapse of communism. Um, and it was only after the collapse of communism that the it became possible to talk to Soviet veterans um, who'd had experience in Cuba and also to gain access to Soviet archives. I mean, the Cuban archives, I went to Cuba, but actually the Cuban archives are still pretty much closed. And so there's a lot we don't know on the Cuban side. I mean, for example, that uh, the plan to attack the uh, naval base at Guantanamo was uh, the man in charge of that whole area of Cuba back in October 1962 was Fidel Castro's brother, Raul Castro, the late president of, of, uh, of uh, Cuba. Um, so he would have been informed and involved in any uh, uh, attack on the Guantanamo naval base. And there must be Cuban archives that uh, uh, describe that, but 
we haven't had access to them. Uh, access is banned. And it would have been interesting to know how the Cubans felt at the time about these two superpowers basically negotiating about their country and just like, you're going to have to accept whatever we come up with. Did you get a sense that there was some uh, resentment on behalf of the Cuban government that they're just kind of a bit player in their own country? (laughs) There was huge resentment. Actually, that we know quite a lot about because uh, Fidel Castro um, has talked about it extensively and has himself participated in conferences um, uh, uh, describing, you know, what he felt about uh, being the plaything of, as he saw it, of the two superpowers. When Ken Khrushchev announced that he was taking out his missiles from Cuba, uh, Castro felt betrayed, and um, he flew into a rage. He broke a mirror or a, some kind of portrait and uh, berated the Soviet ambassador, and it led to a crisis in Cuban. Soviet relations. Of course, Cuba didn't have anywhere else to turn except for the Soviets. But, and ironically, I think the Cuban Missile Crisis actually consolidated Castro's grip on power because it put an end to American attempts to overthrow him. But initially, at least, he felt betrayed by the Soviets. And there was some question, was there not, on behalf of the Soviet leaders as to whether Castro would even accept the missiles? in the beginning. And through some negotiation, they reached a an agreement. Is that is that fair to say that there was that the initial discussions between the Soviet Soviet Union and Cuba could have gone differently? They could have gone. I mean, Christo, can, uh, rather Castro was sort of had a thing about Cuban sovereignty and uh, which he defended against Yankee imperialism. But he also sort of was prickly on that subject uh, with the Soviets as well. But on the other hand, I think he wanted Soviet nuclear missiles in the island because he saw them as the ultimate guarantor guarantor of uh, his uh, independence. I mean, the main enemy, as he saw it, was not the Soviet Union. It was the United States. And he saw Soviet nuclear missiles as a way of defending uh, Cuba against the United States. So although he played hard to get, I think he was quite happy to get those uh, nuclear weapons. And he was uh, dismayed, as I said, um, when Khrushchev decided to withdraw them. Did Castro want control of them, control of the ability to launch? Well, ideally, he would have loved to have had control, but the <laughs> Soviets weren't about to get give it to him. I mean, Khrushchev uh you know, he was on the one hand, he thought of uh, uh, Castro as a kind of romantic figure, you know, who stirred up the memories of the revolution in Russia. Um, but on the other hand, you know, they all th- thought of Castro as rather unreliable and unstable, and they certainly weren't going to uh, give up any kind of control of their nuclear weapons to the Cubans. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is Michael Dobbs, who has written the definitive account of probably the most supreme moment of the Cold War, and that's the Cuban Missile Crisis. His book is called One Minute to Midnight. We are discussing the Cuban Cuban Missile Crisis with him today. It started, according to most accounts, on October 16th, 1962, and You could say it lasted until November because of the uh, quarantine, but a lot of people put the kind of the the denouement at 
October 28th. Do you believe that the Cuban Missile Crisis is the is the supremely terrifying moment of the Cold War, where we got as close as we were ever going to get to annihilating each other? Yeah, I mean, there've been other tense moments, particularly you know the building of the Berlin Wall, the Berlin Airlift, um, the there was a nuclear scare in 1980, but I think the Cuban Missile Crisis is the iconic moment. It was the last moment when the uh, you know, American military leaders uh, seriously thought that they could win a war, a nuclear war against the Soviet Union. And Curtis LeMay, who was the head of the Air Force, actually, he was the, um, I think he was uh, the uh, deputy chief of staff uh, at that moment. He uh, believed that uh, Americans had nuclear superiority over the Soviet Union. And this was the an opportunity to put the Russian bear in its place. Um, as he said, you know, we should cut uh, him down to his testicles. And on second thoughts, we should take his testicles off as well. Um, <laughs> Kennedy had a completely different idea, because although it was true that America could have won a nuclear war against the Soviet Union, um, we had many more nuclear missiles that could reach uh, Soviet soil than they had that could reach American soil. Kennedy asked, you know, what would happen if just one Soviet nuclear missile made it through? And he was told, well, perhaps half a million dead. And that was unacceptable to him, both as a politician and as a human being. So he said, we can't fight uh, nuclear wars. Uh, nuclear weapons are only good for deterring. We can never fight a nuclear war. So, and that question was really settled, I think, at the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it was the last time when, you know, some people in the U.S. military establishment, uh, particularly Curtis LeMay, thought it was possible to actually win a nuclear war. Khrushchev sure liked his uh, testicles metaphors. Uh, as I recall, he didn't, didn't Khrushchev call uh, Berlin the testicles of the West and all I have to do is squeeze them and I can make them howl? Yeah, you. That's uh, correct. Uh, he was a. I mean, he came from peasant family in Ukraine, and he spoke in a very colourful language. And um, you know, that was the sort of other incidents I could give of uh, uh, <laughs> Kennedy's of Khrushchev's colourful use of metaphors. But um, he uh, he was a very you know crude, um, uh, but. Um, I mean, he was complete opposite to Kennedy in some ways. I mean, he, uh, you know, he was old enough to be Kennedy's father, mm. and um, he had a very crude understanding of U.S.-American relations. He believed in the sort of power, and he thought he could bully Kennedy. And Kennedy, you know, felt he had to show that Khrushchev that he couldn't be bullied. Because they had met in Vienna in the previous year, and you had the Berlin Wall going up at the same time. And there were instances where, to your point, Khrushchev bullied or tried to bully Kennedy. And as I recall, Kennedy made a comment to that effect after Vienna. Yeah. He felt like he had been strong-armed or bullied sure. a bit. How do you think that the previous encounters or interactions between the two fueled how they approached this from kind of a, I want to say, not necessarily a machismo 
uh, perspective. But if you're going to be the leaders of the superpowers, you got to have you got to have stones and you got to have an ego. Right. Um, you've got to have cojones, as Madeleine Albright uh, put it in another uh, context. Um, I mean, they only met once personally, um, which was at Vienna. And Kennedy came away from that meeting sort of feeling that um, uh, he, uh, you know, Khrushchev had treated him like a young kid. And uh, he had to uh, show Khrushchev that he was not going to be pushed around like that, or the United States was not going to be pushed around. So that was certainly part of the background to the Cuban Missile Crisis. When Khrushchev actually deployed nuclear weapons in Cuba, 100 miles from American shores, I mean, those few missiles in Cuba didn't actually affect the overall balance of power between the United States and and the Soviet Union. I mean, it didn't really matter whether you fire a, a, web, uh, a missile from Cuba that hits the United States or you fire it from the Soviet Union and hits the United States. We still had overwhelming numbers of uh, missiles that could um, you know, survive any first uh, strike and uh, launch a devastating retaliation against the Soviet Union. So it didn't actually change that much in military terms, but it was a psychological, political threat to uh, Kennedy. And he felt that if he allowed to, uh, Khrushchev to get away with this, that would affect this sort of psychological balance of power between the two superpowers, the prestige of the two superpowers. So that was one reason why he decided early on that he had to get those missiles out of Cuba. Didn't after Vienna, their summit, as I recall, did Khrushchev say, I think we scared that young man or something similarly condescending? Yeah, I mean, he said that Kennedy was young enough to be his son and was pretty uh, contemptuous about him. And um, he certainly thought that he had won that encounter. And the people who were briefing Kennedy about the possibility of a first strike using nuclear weapons, which is different than a first use, first strike is meant to basically disable the other side's ability to strike back. And please correct me, Michael, if I have that wrong. But do you think there was a, a wry smile inside Kennedy when he was being told once again of the overwhelming nuclear superiority of the United States relative to the Soviet Union? Because in 1960, in his campaign for president, he pounded home the notion of a missile gap that existed between the two countries. And his point was that the Soviet Union was on the higher side of the gap. How wrong was he in 1960 and how overwhelming a superiority did we have in October of 62? Well, Kennedy, as you say, campaigned on this uh, supposed missile gap uh, in the Soviet favor. And um, because this information was classified, he didn't know at the time that the gap was actually favored the United States. And um, we had about you know, 10 times the number of uh, weapon missiles or, or uh, nuclear weapons, including um, airborne nuclear weapons that could um, land on Soviet soil than the Soviets had. Um, so the advantage was very much in the on the US side. Um, but um, so, you know, Kennedy, un- he had actually read a book about the origins of the First World War called The Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman. And uh, he saw how the great powers uh, 
drifted to war or got entangled in war uh, in 1914. And he was determined this wouldn't happen again, particularly in a nuclear age, which would you know, mean the end of civilization as we know it. So he had that you know, in his mind and he kept on, he had also served as a young lieutenant junior grade out in the Pacific during the, uh, the Second World War. Actually, Khrushchev had also seen a lot of the war mm-hmm. from a more senior level on the Soviet side. Um, but both those leaders had an idea of what war meant and the devastation that could be caused by war. And they both understood that a nuclear war would be infinitely worse than a um, conventional war. So that, I think, acted as a restraint on both of them. And this notion of sort of preventive war or we're going to have to fight them eventually. Let's do it now while we have the advantage. It happened in the late 19th century where Imperial German generals wanted to fight then Russia because the thought was we're so much stronger. They're only going to get stronger. Clash is inevitable. So let's do it now. Was that some of the thinking among the Joint Chiefs and, and more of the hawkish members of Kennedy's cabinet and, and Khrushchev's advisors as well? I think it's definitely Curtis LeMay's thinking. And there's this uh, confrontation that I describe in my book between LeMay and uh, Kennedy, in which um, uh, LeMay is um, telling Kennedy that basically you're trying to appease the Soviets. And uh, he actually uses that phrase appeasement, which uh, is a loaded phrase in Kennedy's uh, case, because mm-hmm. Kennedy's father, Joseph, exactly. was accused of appeasement uh, in the run-up to the Second World War. Um, He had been the U.S. ambassador to London. And uh, so, you know, Kennedy uh, was very upset by that. And um, so Kennedy actually had people on both sides who were doubting his cojones on the Russian side, uh, Khrushchev, and on the American side, uh, on the American side, uh, Curtis LeMay and people who thought like him. But uh, he wasn't going to lead America into a nuclear war if he could possibly help it. Is it fair to say that the first big decision, the one that set the course for internal American debate and action, was when President Kennedy declared to his team that the missiles cannot be tolerated, much like you know, 30 years later, almost, where George H.W. Bush said, this will not stand. How did Kennedy's resolution that we, we can't allow this to happen, how did that set what happened next? Well, I'd say there were two important early decisions. One was that, you know, we will not, this has to be reversed. But the second important decision, um, which they thought about, was, you know, whether they would take those missiles out. I mean, they knew where the missile sites were and they could have bombed the missile sites. uh, And they thought they had a few days uh, grace because they thought the missiles weren't quite ready to fire. And um, there were some people in the Kennedy uh, entourage who felt that they should take those missile sites out immediately. But instead, they decided to... Uh, introduce what was called a quarantine, which was a kind of softer term for a naval blockade to prevent more Soviet ships from reaching Cuba. And um, ultimately, that gave one time to 
defuse the crisis by peaceful means. So that was also a very important uh, moment, the decision not to take the missiles out uh, uh, through bombing raids, but to allow time for diplomatic negotiations. Forgive this next question, uh, but I couldn't resist asking. If you could have interviewed either President Kennedy or Premier Khrushchev, whom would you rather have talked to about this? Well, I mean, both of them are interesting. I think uh, as a historian, um, because less is known of the Soviets, I'd be more interested in talking to Khrushchev uh, than Kennedy, because we know a lot about Kennedy's thinking. Um, we even have tapes of some of those um, meetings of the XCOM, the group of advisors who were with him during the crisis, but there's still a lot we don't know about Khrushchev. And um, so personally, I'd be more interested in meeting Khrushchev than Kennedy. I read a couple of books about the Eisenhower presidency this past summer. And one of the things that comes through is how incredibly interested Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, was in intelligence, the gathering and the fruits of it. And Kennedy obviously was as well, even though, you know, the, the Bay of Pigs happened under his watch, but it certainly wasn't planned under his watch. But in reading your book and other articles about the Cuban Missile Crisis, the intelligence process is a huge part of it. The technology seems incredibly primitive to us these days, but at the time it was considered high tech. Talk to us a little bit about the intelligence gathering process and, and the materials, the equipment they used to do so. Well, actually, the Cold War was in many ways an intelligence war because it never became a hot war. So it was the kind of there's a lot of maneuvering and a lot of um, information gathering. So the spies were on the front line and they did. I and mean, when one thinks of the Cuban Missile Crisis and intelligence, you think, first of all, about the U-2 spy plane which um, you know, flew at 60,000, 70,000 feet, uh, was therefore very difficult to shoot down, although the Soviets did, as we know, uh, develop a capability to shoot down a U-2 spy plane. Um, and it had these long-range uh, cameras that could uh, photograph you know, very small objects. Um, and that was a game changer because um, the US was able to gather intelligence um, uh, photographic intelligence, both in the Soviet Union and then later in Cuba. Um, and actually, uh, the U-2 uh, technology remained relevant up until very recently. I think U-2 planes were still in operation, um, certainly in the Iraq war. I think, I'm correct me if I'm wrong, perhaps they haven't even gone out of service. Even today, there's still some uses for updated U-2 spy planes. I think they tried to retire the SR-71, and maybe they brought that back as well, the, the supersonic, the plane that's so fast. I think it flew from Cincinnati to St. Louis here in the United States in like 12 minutes. I mean, it represented a huge upgrade. I didn't know that the U-2 planes were still being used, but at the time, it was pretty much the best we had because the satellite technology, if the clouds got in the way, it kind of obscured what you were trying to see. Right. Um, U-2s, uh, certainly up until very recently, um, uh, I uh, wouldn't be surprised if some U-2s are still in service in some places. Of course, 
it's largely now been overtaken by satellite technology. What do you think? You mentioned that you'd love to talk to Khrushchev if you could have. What do you think the impetus was for Khrushchev to roll the dice in such a desperate way? And do you think he misjudged what the American reaction would be? We had a rather primitive idea of the American reaction and the ability to conceal his missiles in Cuba. I think at one point he says to his uh, generals, well, we won't have any problem concealing them because they look like palm trees and uh, the Americans will think they're palm trees. Of course, a missile looks very (laughs) different from a palm tree. Um, But um, I think there were several motivations on the Soviet side. One, he wanted to even up this um, nuclear imbalance um, by, uh, he had lots of intermediate range uh, nuclear weapons, nuclear missiles. He didn't have very many long range. Um, So by putting a few intermediate range uh, missiles in, in Cuba, he could, to some extent, catch up with the Americans. But He also wanted to defend the Cuban revolution. And there was this kind of romantic idea of, um, you know, here was a group of uh, people uh, with beards uh, who had deposed this corrupt authoritarian regime, and they had uh, pledged their allegiance to Marxism-Leninism. And Khrushchev thought this was great, you know, right under in America's backyard. So... They had an idea that once a country had gone socialist or communist, there was history couldn't be turned back. That was part of what the ideology that they believed in. So I think there was definitely an element uh, which was kind of underappreciated by the Americans uh, of Khrushchev wanting to defend his friend Fidel and making sure that uh, the Americans wouldn't be able to overthrow the Cuban revolution. I mean, this was preceded by, you know, many attempts. Uh, Bear Pigs was only one of them, but there was a whole sabotage campaign Mm. against um, the Castro government. Um, And uh, Khrushchev and Castro were convinced that unless some dramatic action was taken, the Americans would eventually overthrow Castro and the socialist revolution in Cuba. You couldn't necessarily answer this question, so forgive me for asking it anyway. Do you think Khrushchev would have gone down this route if Eisenhower was president? Well, that's difficult to say. And in general, I'm sort of wary of kind of hypothetical counterfactual history, um, you know, we don't know. Um, I mean, it's quite possible he he would have done. Um, he probably had more respect for Eisenhower as a military leader than he did for Kennedy initially. But, you know, the basis of he also felt betrayed by Eisenhower because Eisenhower had sent U2s over the Soviet Union. So he would have been quite happy to teach Eisenhower a lesson as well. Um, You know, a lot depends on his emotional makeup. Um, He's often reacted emotionally. I mean, he was also upset by the US deployment of intermediate range weapons in Italy and Turkey. Um, He had a country house on the Black Sea, and he would take visitors out and give them to the terrace and give them a 
a pair of binoculars and say, what do you see? And the, uh, the uh, visitor would say, well, I can't see anything, just see. And uh, Khrushchev would say, well, I can see American uh, uh, missiles aimed at my country house. So, you know, he wanted to get even with the Americans and show that the Soviet Union was a superpower, at least as powerful as the rival American superpower. You mentioned this a few minutes ago. I just want to revisit for one quick minute, either through your book or or through the movies, whether it's uh, 13 Days or Missiles, uh, Missiles of October, I think is what it's called. Uh, with Martin Sheen and William Devane, a movie came out in the 1970s. That's the first movie I remember. That's my first. Uh, I was born in 67. So my first kind of like, what is this movie about? Happened watching that show. But Kennedy's advisors were all over the place. There were hawks. There were doves. Uh, what kind of grade would you give the president uh, for handling the differing views of their of his advisors? I think that, I mean, if you listen to those debates in the XCOM um, during those 13 days, it's a very high level of debate, and you cannot uh, fail to be impressed by the sort of calm, uh, cool way in which um, Kennedy manages the whole thing. I mean, it's very impressive. Um, And there's some people who run down Kennedy's performance, actually, the former Secretary of State, Dean Rusk was one of them. He said, well, it was sheer dumb luck that we uh, survived this. And um, I don't agree with that. I think there was an element of luck involved, but I think it was intelligent luck, um, both on both sides, that uh, both Kennedy and I think Khrushchev realized that the world had come to the brink and that they had to take steps to step back from the brink before it was too late. So I credit both of them with understanding that and steering us through this crisis that could have turned out a lot worse. I think both of them made mistakes, uh, particularly before the crisis. I mean, Khrushchev was erratic. He uh, sent these missiles to Cuba based on sort of wrong assumptions about the American reaction. Um, Kennedy can also be faulted for the, you know, thinking that he could just uh, launch these sabotage campaigns against Castro without any kind of Soviet reaction. So they both made, you know, mistakes in the run-up to the crisis. But I think you have to credit both men with, you know, uh, helping uh, take rational decisions during the crisis that averted the worst. If you look at some of the documents, and I hate to call them decision trees, but but menu of options. You don't think about it. And I didn't think about it too much till flipping through your book again and being reminded that one option the Americans had was simply to just do nothing, that Soviet missiles were a way of life. And, you know, we should just accept it the way they accept ours. I believe McNamara, Robert McNamara, who was secretary of defense at the time, is quoted as saying the missiles just didn't change anything. They were not significant. Do you think that's a fair statement? And, and, would it have been possible militarily, if not necessarily politically, for the United States to just say, okay, they've got missiles there, let's move on? Well, actually, Kennedy, both McNamara and Kennedy uh, were of that view. Um, if you just consider it as a kind of 
question of the military balance, but it wasn't only a question of the military balance. It was a question of political prestige and the kind of psychological balance between uh, the two leaders. And um, Chris Kennedy had drawn a red line in the sand um, before he knew that Khrushchev had deployed nuclear weapons to Cuba. Uh, Kennedy had given a speech in which he had said that this, we will not tolerate this. Um, if it was established that the Soviets had deployed nuclear weapons in Cuba, uh, we would um, make sure that would be reversed. So he was kind of committed to that red line, in defense of his own red line. And having drawn the red line, it was you know practically impossible for him to... Uh, to wriggle out of it, particularly if you recall in 1962, it was an election year, not a presidential mm -hmm. election year, but a congressional election year. This all happened in the run-up to the uh, midterm elections. Um, Kennedy was under great pressure from the Republicans in Congress who were accusing him of, you know, sell out to the Russians. Um, and uh, so he would have given his political enemies a, uh, you know, handed them an election victory on a plate if he had, you know, failed to through, follow through on his uh, promises about the red line. So politically, it was unacceptable. Um, and that was more, it turned out to be more important than the sort of military uh, balance of power. And the Democrats did have a good November of 1962 at the ballot box. Indiana elected for the first time a very famous senator named Birch Bayh. He won in 1962. And Nixon, after losing to Kennedy in 1960, famously or infamously lost the California governor's race to Edmund Brown and said, this is my last press conference. And you don't see the video on the Leaders and Legends podcast, but I can tell you, Mr. Michael Dobbs is smiling. <laughs> as I say, you don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Uh, that turned out not to be true. It's fair to say that the Doves won the argument. Um, but what could the Soviets have done other than launching the missiles? Uh, what could they have done to have undermined the Doves argument? And empower people like LeMay to say the Russians only the Russians only understand strength. This is a provocative move. We've got to punch back hard. What could the Soviets have done to change the internal debate within the Kennedy administration? Well, the main thing is they could have kept their missiles on Cuba. Then that would have um, you know confronted Kennedy with a very difficult choice. Actually, I think he had a few tricks up his sleeve. Um, you know, even if on October 28th, uh, Khrushchev hadn't announced the withdrawal of Soviet missiles, Kennedy was still determined to go to the extra mile to reach some kind of compromise. And, uh, for example, he was willing to trade uh, U.S. missiles in Turkey with Soviet missiles in Cuba. And he was thinking about that trade. Um, in fact, he promised uh, or rather his brother, Bobby Kennedy, promised the Soviet ambassador in Washington that those missiles would be withdrawn. But the whole thing was kept secret for 40, 50 years. Um, so there was a trade-off, but it wasn't a public trade-off. I think probably Kennedy would have been willing to accept a public trade-off. I mean, so he had, he, uh, he had a few... Um, 
dip, dip, diplomatic initiatives that he could have uh, used. Um, so I don't think they it ever quite reached the point of um, you know Kennedy having to call Khrushchev's bluff because Khrushchev eventually, after all, climbed down. The popular or maybe entertainment movie industry take on the Cuban Missile Crisis focuses on the American side for obvious reasons. Uh, take us inside the Kremlin. Uh, we should note that that Michael, uh, there's a photo on michaeldobsbooks.com. I think I have that website correct, where he is literally standing next to the tank while Boris Yeltsin denounces the coup against Gorbachev in the, in the last throes of the Soviet Union. So Mr. Dobbs's both his historical and journalistic credentials are impeccable. But take us inside the Kremlin. What was the mood inside the Soviet Union among top leadership? And, and do you, are you surprised how it played out once you had a look at those archives? Well, Khrushchev was, I mean, formally in the Soviet Union, the supreme decision-making body was the Politburo, the leadership of the Communist Party, a group of about 12 rather elderly men, uh, no women, um, who ran the Soviet Union. But in fact, it was a one-man show, uh, Khrushchev, although he had to consult with his Politburo colleagues and inform them about what he was doing. So when Khrushchev, I mean, they were kind of listening to all this um, and listening to his bluster and, um, you know, supporting them him because they had to. But privately, they quite enjoyed seeing him get, um, you know, his whole policy into a twist because they never actually in their heart of hearts supported him. And if you recall the following year, um, uh, well, in 1964, I think Khrushchev was overthrown by the other Politburo members. And one of the accusations launched against him was that uh, he had um, initiated all these adventurous harebrained schemes, one of which was sending missiles to Cuba. So I think the, you know, he had his rivals in the Soviet leadership. Um, one of the man was was the one of them was the man who eventually replaced him, uh, Leonid Brezhnev, who you know um, quite enjoyed seeing uh, Khrushchev get himself into this terrible situation and then having to extricate himself, and that certainly led to Khrushchev's demise a couple of years later. A nuclear exchange between the United States and the Soviet Union obviously would not just affect uh, those two countries. How were their respective allies involved in the, the diplomacy surrounding this event? Well, obviously, the country that would have been most affected was uh, Cuba itself. And uh, Fidel, you know, the slogan of the Cuban revolution is patria or muerte, fatherland or death. And uh, the Cubans were certainly willing to uh, sacrifice themselves on the, uh, if they, Cuba became a target of nuclear war. Of course, Cuba would have been the first country to have been wiped out in any nuclear exchange. Um, but uh, you know, Castro was a fanatic, and he was willing to you know, die in the um, defense of his country. 
and bring his country down with him. Um, he thought that was the best way to defend the revolution, actually, was to sh show that he was willing to die in the defense of the revolution. Um, I mean, had it come to nuclear war, you can you know, envisage other countries being uh, affected as well, particularly in Europe. Um, I mean, those uh, countries that on which U.S. nuclear weapons were stationed, including Turkey, Italy, uh, the U.K., um, they'd have all eventually been dragged into it. And none of them had very much to say about how this crisis would be resolved because it sort of became a superpower crisis. And there was relatively little consultation with allies on either side. Kennedy's early years, early year, maybe we say first 18 months as president from a foreign policy perspective could could be described or characterized as as uneven. And I don't think that's a political point. You had the Bay of Pigs invasion, which was a huge failure. The building of the Berlin Wall, uh, as you mentioned, we discussed earlier, the Vienna summit with Khrushchev, which in Kennedy's own, own words didn't go very well. But, but his performance during the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, gets almost universal acclaim. Do you think his leadership is what really cemented his legacy, along with his martyrdom, but cemented his legacy as a top American leader? Well, as you say, he made a lot of mistakes, particularly in his first um, year in office. And I think that he matured as a president, as you know, presidents usually do. Um, had the Cuban Missile Crisis happened a couple of years earlier, the result might have been different. But, you know, he had been tested before and he had made mistakes and he had learned from these uh, mistakes. I mean, I think that, you know, he's not entirely blameless, um, as I suggested, for the miss missile crisis. Um, but I think that um, his main contribution and main strength was that he understood that all kinds of things were happening that he and Khrushchev lacked the ability to control. And there was not, it was not a case of, you know, these two leaders who completely controlled their respective military machines facing off against each other. It was two leaders who didn't control their military machines. And thankfully, they understood that, which is why they acted to bring the crisis to an end after just 13 days. Any book or movie about the Cuban Missile Crisis focuses on John F. Kennedy, of course, from the American side. But how critical was the role played by his brother, Robert Kennedy, as both a trusted advisor and sort of clandestine diplomat and contact for the other side? Well, JFK used uh, Bobby to, as his emissary, his back channel to the Soviets through the Soviet ambassador in Washington. Anatoly Dobrynin, and uh, Bobby and Dobrynin held um, several secret meetings during the missile crisis, at which there were these kind of backdoor negotiations. So, you know, Bobby was the attorney general. Um, undoubtedly, he had a special relationship with Kennedy, with Jack Kennedy. That doesn't mean they were the same person at all. I mean, they were different types of people. Uh, Bobby was much more emotional than Jack. Um, and um, but, uh, you know, the two brothers trusted each other and um, Jack 
which is why Jack used Bobby as his uh, envoy to um, his back channel to Khrushchev. Um, so, yeah, I think that Bobby made um, a significant contribution as uh, Jack's alter ego during the missile crisis. But it was, um, you know, ultimately the main decisions were taken by John Kennedy. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We're speaking with author Michael Dobbs, discussing his book, One Minute to Midnight, which is about the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was playing out right now, 59 years ago. The resolution of the Cuban Missile Crisis is thought of as an American victory or an American triumph, but that necessarily wasn't the case contemporaneously. There were elected officials and cabinet members and thought leaders who thought that the Cuban Missile Crisis was a defeat, or at least not a clear-cut victory. What was their argument? Well, people like uh, Curtis LeMay certainly thought it was a defeat, um, that uh, we had the opportunity to, you know, to hit the uh, Russian bear on the nose, and we uh, fluffed it. And we also, you know, uh, gave up these missiles in Turkey, which, by the way, were completely obsolete. They were pretty <laughs> useless. I mean, anything that those missiles in Turkey uh, were able to hit could be hit by American uh, nuclear submarines that were just coming into um, service at that time. Um, uh, but um, so, but I think, you know, the overwhelming feeling was one of relief, actually, because uh, the, this crisis had you know, built up over two weeks. Um, Americans, it's difficult to recall the sort of paranoia of those days, but you know, people had air raid shelters or bomb shelters in their backyards. Uh, kids were taught to duck and cover under their desks if um, the Soviets launched nuclear weapons. So I think, you know, although there were critics of Kennedy, um, I think the overwhelming view was one of relief this crisis had been diffused just uh, two more questions before we let you go what were the long-term effects of this crisis for american and soviet relations well the soviets felt that uh you know they had they felt a sense of humiliation so i think that led in part to the soviet soviet nuclear buildup during the 60s and 70s under uh, brezhnev um, but um, also the group of people around Kennedy, um, his national security advisor, George Bundy, and uh, also McNamara to a certain extent, they thought that you know, they had understood with the Cuban Missile Crisis um, the art of crisis management, how to escalate and how to use you know, American military power to make the other side back down without actually going to war. And they, uh, you know, there was a kind of hubris that set in and they thought they could apply the same techniques to the Vietnamese. And this sort of in part explains the escalation of the Vietnam War under President Johnson and that same group of advisors that had served Kennedy. Um, so, in some ways, the wrong lessons were drawn from the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, it wasn't that the it turned out that controlled escalation was something very difficult to achieve, and it simply didn't work in the Vietnam 
Vietnam, uh, Vietnamese case. Uh, and the main lesson of the Cuban Missile Crisis was not that you can manage crises like this, but was that you shouldn't get into them in the first place because you know they're too risky, um, and that uh, there are a whole lot of things that a president cannot simply cannot control, uh, even though people may think that a U.S. president is all powerful. He's not all powerful at all. And that should have been the lesson that we took away from the Cuban Missile Crisis, not the idea that um, a president can calibrate and escalate uh, uh, nuclear or non-nuclear confrontation. And didn't, am I correct in remembering that Khrushchev made the argument that the Soviets got everything they wanted? Like, you're not going to invade Cuba, those those missiles are gone in Turkey, like we rolled the dice and we won. But two years later, he's out. How wrong was Khrushchev or was he? Well, it was undoubtedly a political humiliation for the Soviets and for Khrushchev personally. And that led in part to um, Khrushchev's own ouster from power a couple of years later. Um, so publicly, it was a defeat for Khrushchev. There's no doubt about that, um, because the uh, bargain about uh, bringing Soviet, uh, U.S. missiles out of Turkey was never made public. In fact, it was known to a very small group of people and was not even known, widely known on the Soviet side. Um, that only became public uh, 40, 50 years later. You mentioned the movie a few minutes ago. So last question for you is, what did you think of the movie 13 Days, leaving Mr. Costner's, Kevin Costner's attempt at a Boston accent aside for a second? Uh, what did you think of the history of that movie? Or did you just, I asked Susanna Lipscomb, who's a Tudor historian. She came on the podcast about a month ago and asked her, could she look, watch historic movies and like, not look at it as a PhD professor, right? Like just it's the entertainment and I got to take it. Her answer was yes, except for Tudor movies, movies (laughs) about the Tudors. She cannot do it. So as a cold war historian who has written this book, when you watch that movie and I'm assuming you did, what did you think of it? Well, I thought it was, um, you know, it was amusing and certainly entertaining. Um, and I think it sort of captured some of the atmosphere of those times and some of the depictions of, you know, what a Soviet missile looked like uh, were quite accurate. Um, so some of the scenes were quite accurate. On the other hand, as history, it's pretty flawed. A lot of it simply didn't happen, including the confrontation on the blockade line that I talked about and this relation building up the Kevin Costner character. Um, I think uh, that was one of Kennedy's Irish advisors as his key aide during the crisis simply wasn't the case. You know, um, Kenny O'Donnell, Mm -hmm. Kenny O'Donnell. No, Um, Kenny O'Donnell was an old, um, you know, political aide of uh, of John Kennedy's, but he didn't have the influence he later claimed that that movie depicts him as having in the uh, running of the missile crisis. But so, yeah. I mean, uh, you have to take these uh, historical movies with a grain of salt, and um, they are not always uh, completely historically accurate, to say the least. So a la Siskel and Ebert, thumbs up or thumbs down? 
I'd say one thumb up, one thumb down. <laughs> you, have, you have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Michael Dobbs, author of One Minute to Midnight, Kennedy, Khrushchev, and Castro on the Brink of Nuclear War. Michael, this is the second time you've come on. I'm incredibly grateful. Your books are absolutely amazing, and I can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you very much. Uh, Perhaps we'll chat again. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.